0: please, friends, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14, and you'll find that on page 742 if you're using a copy of the Scriptures under the seat in front of you. We end our study, uh, a short study today. We've been talking about Luke's salvation parables. Pastor Belanger will be preaching next Sunday, and then we'll begin another short series on Uh, Matthew's, some of the parables in Matthew uh, of the gospel of grace. Last week, remember friends, we looked at that parable where Jesus told the story about the woman who broke the alabaster jar and with her tears and her hair cleansed his feet and then poured that perfume on his feet. And we looked at the forgiveness, the, the absolute fullness of the forgiveness of sin that is ours in the finished work of Jesus. It's a natural conclusion then today that we would look at this parable, Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, because here Jesus tells us now forgiveness of sin leads us to receiving the righteousness uh, that Jesus gives to us. He took our sin in himself. He took it from us and now gives us his righteousness. And that's what we read in this parable this morning. Our approval, standing in the presence of God, fully approved. How? Why? That's what we're going to determine. Let's look then. Give our attention to God's word from Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Hear now the word of God. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. O Father, by your Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful, beautiful things from this your holy law. Open our hearts to receive it. Open our our hearts to see that we are more like the Pharisee than we really even want to admit. That we desire the approval of mankind instead of standing in the full approval of a loving Heavenly Father. So bless the preaching of your word this morning, we pray, that it might find great application in our lives today and every day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. The story is told, I've told it to you before actually, the story is told of Charles Spurgeon who was uh, approached by one of the women in his congregation one particular Lord's Day and she simply said, ah Mr. Spurgeon, that indeed was a glorious sermon this morning. And Spurgeon replied saying, yes I know, the devil whispered it in my ear as soon as I stepped down the first step of the pulpit. Founding pastor... A former pastor of Park City's Presbyterian Church and my friend Skip Ryan once said this, what you think of me really is not my business. That's between you and God. But what I think that you think of me tears me up inside. The Pharisee and the publican in this particular parable are confronted with the same thing. This whole idea of the approval of mankind. So all the way from the first century to the 1800s and even into the 2000s, we find ourselves, friends, with great delight in desiring to receive the praise of other people. It is our hunger at times, a hunger to to find approval in the sight of of other people, To, to, to think that you think highly of me, to think that others think highly of you. It is a burning desire in our hearts many times to find ourselves being fully approved by one another and therefore then neglecting the fullness of the approval that we actually have in the presence and in the eyes of our loving Savior. We so desire the approval of other people. We want, we want others to think that we're the best parent. We want others to think that our children are the best children. We want that job interview to go in such a way that when we leave, that there would be no way that they wouldn't want me to be part of their company. We we even seek the approval in our spouse. My wife has been gone for a month, a month. You should feel sorry for me. A month, but I'm leaving today, and I'm going down to where she is. But I've been, in my mind, I I even thought about it a few times, (laughs) writing down a few, I need to be sure that she understands all of the little tasks that I completed around the house in her absence so that I can put that right there when she gets back because I so desire for her to say, oh, this is, you got all of this accomplished, wonderful. You do it too, I know you do. Maybe not that, but you do something like that where you so hunger, thirst, and desire for the approval of other people. That's what this parable is all about, friends. This parable is about righteousness. And righteousness is just that fancy Christian word that we use for approval. We stand in the presence of God, approved by Him. Righteous, fully righteous. And yet we would rather have the approval of one another than we would to find our complete identity in this righteousness that we have that is the gift of God himself. Like all of Jesus' parables, what he does here is he gives us two options. He gives us two men with two prayers and two conclusions and then simply asks this question, which one are you? Which one are you? Are you the one who wants righteousness and approval from other individuals in this world? Or are you the one who is resting fully in the righteousness and the approval of your loving Heavenly Father? You know, I think many times, friends, we read the parables enough or we hear them read to us enough that they really lose their shock factor in our hearts and in our minds today. You no doubt have heard this parable scores of times, right? And you no doubt are thinking that you understand what it says and what it is, and it therefore loses its shock factor. Put yourself, though, into the position of the hearers of that day. Jesus is presenting individuals now. He is presenting a Pharisee and a publican, a tax collector. And the Pharisee, many times, see, we spend all of our time saying, I don't want to be like that guy. That was a bad, bad guy. And we, we, we cast all of the Pharisees down into the, into the very pit of hell saying that, yo, look at how bad that Pharisee was. They would not have thought that way at all. The Pharisees in that particular day were religious people, the lovers of the law, the teachers of the law, and they were highly respected, highly respected. And so when Jesus lays out this two, these two individuals and he lays down a Pharisee and a, and a publican, a tax collector, The shock factor was a big one for them when he said, this guy over here is the one that went home righteous, not this guy. It would have blown their minds. So here's my request for you today. I don't want this parable to lose its shock factor on your life because whether you are willing to admit it or not, you are more like the Pharisee and I am more like the Pharisee than we ever want anybody to completely understand. We so desire, hunger, thirst, and crave for the approval of one another to always be right. I need you to know that I am always right. In my marriage, I am always right, and she needs to understand that I am always right. Whatever it is, we desire that more than anything else And so Jesus lays out, okay, here you go. Here are two individuals. Friends, I need you to find the shock factor. Which one are you? So look at this text, how it starts. Jesus gives us a little bit, or Luke does. Luke is the author of the book, of course, and he's giving us history. Jesus has been talking about uh, the kingdom of God. That's how he ends chapter 17, the coming kingdom of God, that he is the, the king He is now seated on his throne. All fulfillment of prophecy is in him right now. So he's talking about this kingdom. And so then we have this first first, uh, word or indication in verse 9 that some of those people there were confident in their own righteousness and they looked down on everybody else. And so then the parable uh, or the story begins. Jesus tells this parable two men went up to the temple to pray. Now get, get the picture in your mind. They're actually going up to the temple. The temple sat on top of a mountain, uh, a small mountain, only about 1,800 feet. It's not a real big mountain, but to went up is, is actually what they did. They went up because the city of Jerusalem is up on top of the mountain. They went up to the temple to pray. They did that several times a day. They went up to the temple to have the prayers of the day. Perhaps this is the afternoon prayers, and so they're going all, all going up to the temple to pray. And then Jesus says, this Pharisee, the Pharisee now, uh, and the tax collector, but the Pharisee stands up, stood up, and prayed about himself. Literally translated... It says that the Pharisee took a stand, and and rightly so. He was a teacher of the law. In order to be heard by those people that were there in the temple, he would stand up and he would speak with authority, and they would expect that. So in the eyes of mankind, he's doing exactly what he should do. He is standing up, but look at how he prays. He stands up, took a stand, and prayed about himself, or if you look at your footnote down in the bottom of your Bible there, literally translated, he stood up, took a stand, and prayed to himself. To himself. And look at his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like this guy, that guy, and the other guy. Who's the center of his prayer? He is. He starts with God. God, I thank you that I am always right. I am never wrong. I thank you that all of these people are looking on me with great affection because this is my position. I am standing up. And look at his prayer, how his prayer goes. It actually has two aspects. There is a negative aspect and a positive aspect. I thank you that I am not like all these other men who are robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Well, he, he's a teacher of the law, friends. He knows that the law commands that he can't be any of those things. So he focuses on this negative. Thank you that I'm not a robber, I'm not an evil person, and I'm not an adulterer. But what is he really doing by, by focusing there on those, those negative things? He's actually, therefore, keeping himself from focusing on the sins that he did commit. And he does commit. Wouldn't it be easy? I thank you, God, that I have not slit the throat of anybody in my life. Well, I haven't done that. But I have done all of these other things. But by focusing on this, oh, I thank you that I haven't done that, it keeps me from focusing on these that I have done. We spend so much of our time thanking Him that I am not a certain way when I haven't done a certain thing, all the while doing all of these other things, which is exactly then why He moves on to the positive aspect. Look at it in verse 12. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything that I have. Now listen, there is teaching instruction in the Bible about fasting, and there is instruction about giving of our offerings as well. Whether you believe it's a 10% or even more than that, whatever it is, there's teaching there. But what is he doing now by focusing on the positive things that he does? He is now removing any guilt from those sins that he's committed that he's not going to confess. I do this and this, and these are all good things, so I feel good about it. Doggone it, I'm a nice person. I'm a good person. And I want everybody to see that. I want everybody to believe that. He took a stand, and he prayed to himself, about himself, because he wanted the praise of mankind. Here's a wonderful quote. Listen to this quote from one of Arthur Miller's plays. This play entitled, After the Fall, says this, for many years, I looked at my life as a case of law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or how smart you are, what a good lover you are, then what a good father you are, finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path to some elevation where I would either be justified or condemned a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day at the bench and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight and all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existing before an empty bench which of course is another way of saying utter despair. That is exactly what we do when we seek the approval of mankind, when we seek for others to find us as this holy, righteous, spiritual person. We are pleading before an empty bench. There is no one seated there. Do you get the shock factor, beloved? I I, I got to have you get the shock factor. See, we spend all of our time saying, I don't want to be like the Pharisee. He really is a bad, those bad guys. He was a religious person. He was a Presbyterian that went to church just about every single Sunday, like you and me. We are like him. We're exactly like him. But standing in the presence of a holy God, friends, listen, Standing in the presence of a holy God in our self-righteous ways doesn't mean that all I have to do is look better than the guy next to me. And that's what we think many times. We are standing now with this self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying about this Pharisee. This whole self-righteousness looking in the eyes of man. But you're literally standing before God and we are saying, I thank you that I, 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 it's always... It's always that hunger, that burn, that desire. For people to think highly of ourselves, and we even we even impose that on God many times. You ought, to, God, you've got to look down on me and say, wow, that he's one of my he's really one of my children. Look at him, the way he's catechizing his children, or the way he's you know leading in devotions, or the way he's honoring me at work, all of which we should be doing, all of those good things, but friends. Seeking to get everybody else to see that for our own praise and glory is self-righteousness. But thanks be to God He doesn't leave us there. There is so much good news right here. Now let this shock factor knock you down. The shock factor that Jesus loves you He loves you in such a way that He gives us a whole other person who prays a whole other prayer and clings to a whole other promise than the Pharisee. And it is that publican, the tax collector. Verse 13, the tax collector, now look at him, stood at a distance. In the eyes of mankind now, this tax collector would have been seen as a crook He doesn't even come to, he doesn't take a stand in their presence. Look at what it says. He stood at a distance. They wouldn't have let him come into their presence because he was a crook. He was a worker of Rome. He was a guy who beat them down, browbeat them over and over again for taxes and taxes and taxes. And anytime he could get a little bit more, he put a little bit more into his pocket He was a crook, a thief, in the eyes of the people in that particular day. And so he takes a stand to the side. But look at his response. He doesn't even, not only does he not look at mankind, he doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beats his breast. He beats his breast as he prays. He is now, he doesn't care about what others are thinking about him. He realizes that his sinful life is lived before and against a holy God. He is in the presence of a holy God that he can't even look up to, but beats his breast and prays the prayer of seven words. Seven words. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now look at this prayer in connection with the other prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, No, look at how he begins and how he ends his prayer. God, the beginning, he's addressing the one who is seated on his throne, the one who he is standing before, and literally translated, it doesn't say a sinner. It is a definite article in Greek. It is the sinner. The same thing that the Apostle Paul said, I am the chief. He is giving this indication that he knows the pecking order here. God is there and I'm down here. God the Holy One and me, the chief of all sinners. He is giving the understanding that he is in the presence of God knowing knowing that God is seated on his throne. He is in control, the giver of all good gifts and the man himself is not. It's what the reformers said like this, to know God is to know self. Knowing God is to know Him as sovereign. To know self is to be subject. To know Him to be holy is to know self to be sinful. To know Him to be full of wisdom is to know self to be foolish. And to know Him to be love is to know self to be unlovely. When we know God and see Him in the splendor of His glory for who He is, then we better know ourselves. We are corrupt in every part of our being but for the grace of God, we would still be in, dead in our sins and in our transgressions. The sinner. But look what he gives us in the middle. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Literally translated, this says, be mercy seated toward me. What is he saying? What is Jesus telling us? Here's the shock factor, friends. Where are they? They went up to the temple to pray. He is standing in the temple, will not even lift his eyes up to a holy God that he knows he's standing in the presence of, and sees the blood-stained altar from the sacrifices that took place either the night before or that very morning. He sees the blood on the altar and he says, that cannot do. That can't do. I need you, O God, to be mercy-seated toward me. He knew knew Leviticus. He knew the day of atonement. He knew that there was blood that was applied to the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant for the full forgiveness of sins. And he's saying that sacrifice, the blood of an animal, will not be mercy to me. I need you to be mercy-seated to me. I need you to be my sacrifice that will save me and make me fully righteous and approved in the presence of a holy God wow that is a shock factor and that's exactly what he promises to do and then he gives us this up down language they went up to the temple to pray and then it says literally translated he went down to his home in verse 14 Jesus said I tell you this that man rather than the other one went down to his home And then he gives us this up-down. If you try to elevate yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, then you will be elevated. And that elevation is the fullness of righteousness, approval from God Almighty himself. Friends, you're going to leave this building today. Are you going to leave a different person? Are you going to leave a different husband? Are you going to leave a different wife? Are you going to leave a different covenant child than you came? In the full acceptance and righteousness of God himself, and he's the one that I am pleasing. And by pleasing him, I then am pleasing others, but not pleasing others so that they'll find favor in me, but because of the favor that I have already been given in Jesus Christ. He has been mercy seated toward us. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Fully forgiven last week to fully righteous today. My approval, I don't really... What you think of me is not my business. That's between you and God. But what I think you think of me will tear me up inside. And it does. But when I look there to the mercy seat... And I realize that he has been and promises to always be mercy seated towards me in the finished work of Christ. There's my identity. I don't need your approval. I have approval from Yahweh, from God himself. Do you know that approval, friend? Which one are you? Two people, two prayers, two problems, two solutions. Which one are you? Which one are you going to go home, leave, go down as? It's an article in about 1990. Chris Everett. You remember Chris Everett, the tennis player? This article of an interview with her. I want to read this quote to you. It's after she had retired from tennis. She had recently retired, and the, and the, the commentator was asking, you know, what was life like now? And she said this, I had no idea who I was or what I was going to be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, I needed the applause, and I needed them in order to have my identity. What is your identity? Friends, it has to be that you have been mercy-seated by God himself, by Yahweh. Jesus Christ died for your sin. And then he clothed you, fully, completely clothed you in his righteousness. That's your identity. Your identity is in the approval of a loving God who promises to continue to lavish this grace upon you today and every day. Go home. Go down. A new person. A changed person. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the certainty that we have been made righteous. We are righteous in your sight. We stand in your presence as those that have been forgiven, those that you have blessed, those that are now righteous. This, this relationship has been reconciled because of the finished work of our Savior, the one who has made us righteous. So, Father, let us live that way. Help us to stop trying to find approval from one another. Help us to stop elevating ourselves. but help us now to be humble to humble ourselves before you the very one seated on your throne and to fix our eyes on the fullness of this mercy and grace that you have given to us and then in response to that live live in that acceptance live in that approval live in that righteousness please do that I pray for all my dear brothers and sisters here all of your covenant children around this world Do it for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen. Friends, let's.